You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, take your Bibles with me and turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, we find ourselves finishing the 10th chapter of Romans this morning on our journey through the book. I'd like to take and just read uh, several verses leading up to that, just so we're all on the, the same page in coming to verse 21. So if you would stand with me as we honor the, the reading of Scripture together. I'm going to start at verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him? whom they've never heard, and how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask... Have they not heard? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But if Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Quite a way to end the chapter, isn't it? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we... We read this text, and I pray that as we read through it, we we catch Paul's heart that he put out there for us to see clearly at the beginning of chapter 9 and again at the beginning of chapter 10 that he cares so much for his, his Jewish brothers, his Israel. He loves them. He longs for them to come to Christ. He even says that he he wishes he himself could be a curse or cut off for their sake. Lord, as we deal with this question of has God's word really failed because Israel does not believe? As we continue to look at that question and as we 
focus our attention on verse 21. Lord, we pray that you would work. Pray that you would send your spirit to to open our eyes. Allow us to see the beautiful truths here. Truths of the gospel. Open our hearts that we might be receptive. Judge us where we err. Lord, we pray that your your spirit would do an amazing thing in, in our hearts. That he would point us toward Jesus Christ. That we would see him clearly on display. And that people would have that opportunity this morning. To come to him in faith. And we pray that if there are those here that don't know you, have not responded to the gospel of faith, we pray that they would do that this morning. We pray that you would do that work. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. So just focus your attention on verse 21. But think back. Last time we were in the book of Romans, we looked at a couple of excuses, we called them, that some might have as they get to, to Paul's presentation so far. Right? In, in Romans 9 and Romans 10, they have been some very heavy things. Paul is making this, this case that God is, is not to blame. God's word has not failed because Israel has rejected the gospel. And in doing this, Paul in his, his argument, he talked about doctrines of election, doctrines of predestination, reprobation in Romans 9. Now in Romans 10, he focuses our attention on, on the human responsibility side. Item in Romans 10 that Paul is specifically dealing with, if you remember, is the fact that if Israel rejects the Messiah, this is not God's fault, but it is Israel's fault in rejecting the gospel. At the end of Romans 10, it is as if someone during Paul's preaching raises their hand and says something like this. I know you're a scholar, Paul. I know that you are highly educated. You've had a lot of schooling. I have no doubt that you know what you're talking about. But, but could it be, just, just could it be that you are making things far more complicated than they need to be? After all, that's what you theologian types do. You just complicate things. So the objection was something like this. They would say, couldn't it be, Paul, that that these people that you're talking about just haven't heard? I mean, maybe it's not all this doctrine of election, doctrine of reprobation. Maybe it's not their responsibility. Maybe it's not all of these things. Could it be just so simple that they haven't heard? Or maybe they've heard it and they just don't understand it. Could it be that simple? Of course, if you want to catch that message, you can go back and listen to it. But for now, just note that Paul answers those objections by quoting Scripture. Verse 18, verse 19. 
Have they not heard? Did they not understand? And here in the last verse, Paul continues and closes this portion of his argument with another quotation from the Old Testament. Here he quotes uh, Isaiah 65 and verse 2. And as we've pointed out before, Paul chooses uh, these specific quotes for a, a, a reason. He could have quoted a, a whole number of things to make his point, but it usually has to do with the, the context of the passage that he's quoting. Because the, the people that would be listening would be familiar, not just with the, the portion that he quoted, but it would draw their memory back to the whole discussion. Let me just read uh, the first few verses in Isaiah 65 for you. God is speaking, and he says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was called by name. I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth tainted of tainted meat that is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils and a fire that burns all day long. Just notice, God is not taken by surprise. God knows exactly who these people are. But yet God is wanting them to come to him. They are rebellious. He lists the ways they provoke him. I mean, there's no wonder that God says, they are a fire, there's smoke in my nostrils, there's fire here, they're provoking me to to anger. But yet he is waiting for them. He wants them to come to him. Let's just back up a second and get something else out of the way. I think we've already dealt with this sufficiently, but just so we're all on the same page, and that is that that many people see the the doctrines of uh, election, predestination, and reprobation on, on one side, and they see those doctrines as irreconcilable with the fact that human beings are, in fact, responsible for their rejection of the offer of of salvation. You you see what I'm saying here? If if God chooses some to salvation, the elect, and these are predestined before the foundation of the world to come to faith, and then God passes by others, leaving them in their sin, that's the doctrine of reprobation, then this would necessarily take away any human responsibility. You see the argument That either human beings are responsible for their actions or God chooses some people to salvation. And some would say, you you can't have both of those things. It doesn't make any sense. Pelagius, in the days of Augustine, took that view. He said that that salvation was an, an effort of the human will and it was by works and therefore humans weren't responsible. Augustine answered Pelagius. Pelagius, by the way, was condemned as a heretic. But 
Augustine made the case that these two items are not irreconcilable. In fact, predestination and personal responsibility are two truths that actually support one another. Actually, Paul puts them together in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 9 is all about those hard doctrines. Romans chapter 10 is all about human responsibility. But the fact is, when we understand them, we see that they must be held together. And actually, election or predestination is actually a a solution to human responsibility. Think about it like this. First, you have human responsibility. Second, you have the perverse exercise of that human responsibility in rejecting God. And then third, God's salvation is by grace and his mercy alone because in our responsibility, we have all rejected God. So so predestination then would be God's secret weapon. That's what James Boyce calls it because without it, there would be no one saved. So there is human responsibility and God's creatures squander that. They prove to be disobedient and they exercise their freedom in all sorts of evil ways and actually live in rebellion against God's standards. So the only way in which they would be saved is an action on God's part. Now in the last verse in Romans, chapter 10 here, we see what happens when the only element in the equation is human responsibility. From what we've just said, we know that when the only thing there is human responsibility or human freedom, then the necessary result of that is unbelief. In our corrupt human position, we want freedom, we want autonomy, but that is a result of our corrupt nature because the only result of that responsibility that we have is disobedience and unbelief. You see the importance of Romans 9 in understanding Romans 10? How are they going to hear without somebody preaching to them? The answer is they will not. God uses means to bring about faith in those that he has predestined. And the means is that somebody must share the gospel with them. We're at the very onset of the book, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. There is not salvation without the gospel. But hearing the gospel is one side of the coin. Robert Hildane says it this way. He says, quote, We see what is the result when God employs only outward means to lead men to obedience and not accompany them with the influence of his effectious grace. The result of only preaching without the effectious grace of God is unbelief. Now, Hildown didn't say infectious grace. Like it's a roller coaster. It's built on emotion. It's not an infection or something that is infecting the people used in a positive sense, not like a disease sense. He didn't say that. 
He said, effectious, with an E, having to do with the effect of God's grace. Meaning that when God's grace is given, that grace will take effect and produce faith. When it comes to verse 21, before us, we need to look at three parts here. The first is the compassionate love of God. The second is the disobedience and passionate unbelief of man. And then thirdly, the contrast of the two. So briefly, that's what we're going to do. Notice the quote there in verse 21 from Isaiah 65. We read that at the onset. It's a tremendously moving statement because it points to the love of God in contrast to the disobedient and obstinate rejection of that, of that God's love by his own creatures. You see that in there? Notice the nature of God's love first. First, God's love is continuous. God's love toward us is, is continuous. Notice how this is pictured. Of course, this is what we call an anthropomorphism. It's giving human characteristics to God in order to make a point, And the point is clear. God is saying that he is ready to embrace those who will come to him. But the picture is even more than that, isn't it? It is God ready to embrace those who come to him all day long. He's continually has his hands out and his arms raised, ready to embrace those who will come. Have you ever tried to hold your arms up for a few minutes? When you start, you think, you know, this isn't too bad. I can do this all day. And before you know it, your arms start to quiver. They start to shake. It starts to hurt. Gets increasingly painful quickly. It's hard to hold your arms up for that long. For God to hold out his hands all day long is quite a feat. That's the point. That's the, I mean, God can do anything, but that's the anthropomorphism. He doesn't just say, come now or forget it. If you don't come now, you lose your opportunity. That's not what he's saying. But he's waiting. He's, he, his love then is, is open. It's continuous. Just think about how long this day was, really. We know that time doesn't mean the same thing for us as it means for God. The day is a thousand years to God. The anthropomorphism is, is putting things in human terms. And we know quickly that to hold one's arms up for a day is, is impossible for us. But for God, this day lasted over 4,000 years. Right? We start with Adam and Eve and just think about it. Still has his arms up, ready to embrace and welcome all who come to him. Everyone who calls on him will not be put to shame. Why? Because his arms are out there ready to embrace those. Everybody that believes in him will be saved. Over and over we read that. Why? Because his arms are open. He is ready to embrace all that come to him. So then when will the day of God's grace and, and favor end? When is he going to put his arms down? The answer to that is when Jesus returns in judgment. Think about this personally for a moment, though. Not just the 4,000 years there, but, but during your own lifetime. 
especially if you've not come to Christ and placed your faith and trust in him. God's grace has been offered to you all of your life. God has been standing there with his arms wide open, waiting for you to come and commit your life to him. All of those times in which you've heard about Jesus in in vacation Bible school, you've read the the tracts, you've heard the gospel from your your parents in Sunday school, uh, teachers, co-workers, sermons, whatever it was, God's love has been continuous. How many times have you been in situations where you were asked to come and put your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. How many sermons have you heard? How long have you been attending this church or another gospel preaching church? I mean, you should think of the, the continuous and long-suffering grace of God. He is standing there with outstretched arms. And if you continue to reject the gospel, there will be no excuse. Each plea, each sermon that you hear just puts an end to every excuse that you may have. On the day of judgment, there will be none. I would venture to say that there are those here who have even attended this church for a long time. People who everyone thinks probably is a believer, who's a Christian who've never really placed their faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ alone. You've been trusting in yourself in some way, in your own goodness, in your church attendance, in your church activity. And the list goes on and on. But know this, that there will not be an excuse on the last day. What are you trusting in? Is it Christ? Christ? Or is it, is it yourself? Is it your own merit? Is it your own goodness? Or is it Christ? And what he's done for you. Matthew 7 is clear. Many will come on the last day and say, Lord, I did this in your name. I did that in your name. I did all of these amazing things. And I did it because of, because of you. And he will say, I, I, didn't know, I didn't know you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I mean, it's a scary thought. Sometimes we go through life and we think that there, the time has already passed. God's gotten tired of waiting for us. We've heard the gospel so many times. And now God is tired of waiting for us. We've had our chance. We didn't take it. I used to hear this when I was a kid all the time. Come forward now because you just never know. God might get tired of waiting for you and there'll be a time he's just going to leave you on your own. You're going to miss your chance. That theology might sound good in the moment of getting people to, to come forward because you freaked them out a little bit, tried to scare them. But what if you didn't go forward that day? You were left thinking that it was too late for you. You missed your chance. That's not how God loves. It's not how the love of God that, that Paul is highlighting here is portrayed. God is standing there all day long with his arms stretched out, waiting for a disobedient, rebellious people to come to him. It's not 
him. It's us. Not only is God's love continuous, but it's also compassionate. Think about this for a moment. The image of God's outstretched arms. It's a picture or posture of a, a parent toward a crying child. It's meant to portray compassion. In other words, yes, there's this naughtiness of God's creatures. And that, that anger of God is, is kindled because they are continually obstinate. But the picture here is one of God getting down on one knee, ready to, to welcome the child who is hurt and crying because there is nothing else that is more satisfying than the compassion and love of a parent in that moment. The picture is the posture of a husband toward his wife or the wife toward her husband. The the great love for us. The picture there is the posture of Jesus who loved us so greatly that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. In fact, the clearest picture of the love of God is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. Just think about his hands for a moment in the Gospels. One day Jesus is approached by a leper, a person that that no one would touch, and for good reason. And in Matthew 8, we're told that Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. An act of tremendous compassion and love. On another occasion, two blind men asked for healing, and Jesus touched their eyes and their sight was restored in Matthew 9. Another time, Peter is walking on the water to Jesus after Jesus' invitation to him. Peter starts looking around. He sees the the waves and and all that. He loses his faith and he starts to sink. What did Jesus do? He reached out and caught him and kept him from drowning. Matthew 14. In Mark 10, we see Jesus putting his hands on children and, and blessing them. In Luke 24, Jesus lifts his hands and and blesses all those who who witness his his ascension and going into heaven. I mean, Jesus' hands are are always healing, blessing, saving. I mean, they were tremendously compassionate. We've just begun to touch the surface. Notice one more element of God's love here was costly. You might have made this connection already, but think about his outstretched arms or hands and what they teach us about the love of God. Those hands bear the imprint of the nails brutally pounded through them as he was hanging on that cross bearing our penalty for sin. We should make that connection in this text. His love was constant, compassionate, and tremendous costly. And what, what, is the, what is the response? Look at the other side of this for a few moments. What, what then has our response been to the great, compassionate, constant, costly love of God? Disobedience and obstinance. Just take those one at a time. Disobedience. 
For a lot of us, when we think of the gospel, we think rightly of it as an invitation. There's an invitation to come, place your faith and trust in, in, in God, in, in Christ, in the gospel. We rely on Jesus alone for our salvation. There's a tremendous invitation. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are burdened and, and weary, and I will give you rest in Matthew chapter 11. In Revelation chapter 22, whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take in the, this free gift of the water of life. A tremendous invitation to come to him as the source of life and salvation. But the gospel is also a command. A command to turn from our sin to faith in Jesus Christ. A command to follow him. This is so clearly seen in Acts chapter 17 when Paul is preaching to the Greeks there in Athens. It's an amazing sermon. In the midst of that message, he doesn't only give the invitation to respond to the gospel, but he says, this God that I'm talking about now commands everyone everywhere to repent. And he has set a day in which he is going to judge this world through this same man. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when thousands of people come to faith, he commands people to repent and be baptized. He doesn't say, if you're so inclined, here's an option. He says, this is the command of God. This is, this is the truth. This is who God is. And if you don't do this, you're actually disobeying the gospel. Boyce says that it is characteristic of people to labor strenuously to disobey this command. It was that way of Israel, and it's true for people today. I mean, just look at the world around us for a moment. And imagine how people would respond to, to Paul's message in Acts chapter 17 or Peter's in Acts chapter 2. I mean, who are you to tell me I need to repent? That Jesus is the only way of salvation? That I have to trust him and, and follow him? I mean, it doesn't take much to imagine, right? People would respond in disobedience. God is standing with his arms out. This constant love, this compassionate, costly love in humanity is responding in disobedience. But it goes even further. Not only are people disobedient to the command of God, but they are obstinate in their disbelief. I mean, there's a difference between dis disobedience and obstinate disobedience, isn't there? Israel's response to the gospel was what one commentator called hard-nosed, steely-faced, hard-encrusted, and doggly persistent. And then the commentator turns around and says, but not only theirs. Not only did that obstinance characterize Israel's disobedience, but it characterizes ours as well. What was true of Israel is true of all human nature. The response to the love of God in Christ Jesus is disobedience. 
Just think about the parable of the tenants in Matthew chapter 21. There was a a landowner that that planted a, a vineyard put a fence around it, created a wine press, and then leased it out and went on his way and was going to collect the, the fruit, profits. When time came for the owner to collect, he sent some of his servants to gather his fruit, his payment for owning the vineyard. And those tending the vineyard took the master's servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned the other. The master then sends more servants. Not just again, but this time he he sends more of them. And they were told that they did the same. The tenants did the same thing to them. The master then says to himself, let me send my own son. Let me send my own son to claim what is his, saying "They they will respect my son. But when they saw him, they killed him as well. This time because they thought maybe they could get the inheritance for themselves if the landowner had no son. I mean, this is a picture of biblical history. God sent prophets and preachers, but yet nobody responds. They were not only rejected by people, They were not only disobedient to the message, they, people, were obstinate in their disbelief. We are children of wrath by our own choice and by our own nature. We're disobedient, but even more than that, we're people that gratify our our own Flesh in our own passions and actually follow the devil according to the book of Ephesians. Just think about that contrast for a moment. The contrast between the compassionate love of God stretching out his hands to save sinners and the hardness of those who definitely, defiantly turn their backs on him. This is what is being described in this last verse here. This is the way that this chapter closes. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. How then will people be saved? If God does all this, if God loves this way, and the fact is God has his hand stretched out today just as he did back then. Today is the day of God's grace. Today is the day of salvation according to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, meaning that there is still time. God's arms are stretched out and open. His love is still compassionate, still constant. It's still commanded to repent. Still costly. The gospel is still there. But there will be a day in which it's too late. We mentioned this earlier. When Jesus comes again, he is going to come in in judgment when each one is going to be judged according to their works. Some for their obstinate disbelief and rebellion. Unbelief, by the way, is the unpardonable sin. Those that continue in that. 
Others will be judged, not based on their own merit, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to them. William Newell says it this way. He says, Should we not seek God? He says, No. You should sit down and hear what is written in the book of Romans. First, about your guilt. Then about your helplessness. And then about your, the inability of the law to do anything but to condemn you. In other words, all you can do is dig yourself a bigger hole. He says, then you need to believe that Christ, on whom God sent, and then praise God for the righteousness apart from works, apart from all ordinances. Hear now how God laid sin, your sin on a substitute, his own son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that now sin being put away, God has raised him from the dead. Seek God, know God is the seeker. And he has sought and is now seeking those that ask not of him. It has been found by those who sought him not, but simply heard the gospel and believed it. Isn't that something? Paul asks these, all these rhetorical questions in this text. How are they going to believe a gospel that they've never heard? They won't. We can preach the gospel. We can command people to repent and to believe. And some remain in their obstinate disbelief. But others, they believe. They come to faith, they trust. That's the promise. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire in prayer to God for them, Israel, is that they may be saved. How are they going to hear without a preacher? They're not. Paul says, I'm going to go and I'm going to preach the gospel for them. And they're going to hear it. And I'm going to plead with God that they might believe and not remain in their obstinate unbelief. Notice the first verse of chapter 11. The necessary response. I ask them, has God rejected his people? God is holding out his hands all day long people who are disobedient and contrary, who are obstinate in their unbelief. Has God rejected them? No way. Then he goes on to explain why not. It's a beautiful passage. We'll get to it. But for now, 
we leave it here. God is unwavering in his love, unwavering in his compassion. It was costly. And the gospel is, is there, that Christ lived this perfect life and excelled in, in every way that we have fallen short. By any of our own means, we cannot achieve righteousness before God. Only Christ can do that on your behalf. Trust him and believe in him. That is the gospel. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.